turn to Isaiah 56, I'd like to share a little bit about the book of Isaiah just to help orient us so we know what's going on in the passage we're going to read. Isaiah was written over a period of 40 years by the prophet Isaiah, and it was written in the 8th century BC at a time when Israel had been divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And while Isaiah was writing this book, the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, was in the process of being conquered and exiled by the Assyrian Empire. And so this situation caused Judah, the southern kingdom, to have a theological crisis, a crisis of questioning, is God really God? Is he really powerful? What's going on? Are we his chosen people? Does he hate us? Why is he letting this horrible tragedy happening to us? These were questions that were most likely happening in the hearts and minds of the people of Judah, God's people at that time, and most likely in the hearts and minds of the northern kingdom of Israel as well. But Isaiah wrote this book to tell them what was going on. It's divided into three main parts, Isaiah 1 through 39, which is focused on Isaiah's day. And it's focused on the fact that God is bringing judgment on his people. And it tells them why. It tells them that God had chosen them for a specific person, purpose, a specific purpose. He'd chosen them to be his people on a mission, on a mission to be a light to the nations, to live in the land that he had given them, but to live in it in a, such a way that the surrounding nations would see who God was and want to know him. But the reality was that God, God's people had failed. They'd failed miserably. They had not been a light to the nations. In fact, they had become just like the nations surrounding them. They'd practiced the evil practices that the nations had practiced, including child sacrifice. They'd turned to other gods and idols and were worshiping them, and they were failures. They had done the exact opposite of what God wanted them to do. And so we find ourselves in the situation where God says, I'm going to bring judgment on you in Isaiah 1 through 39. But it was not just 100% sure I'm going to do this. It was a judgment with a condition of, if you repent, then I will turn away from my judgment. That's always the case, almost always the case when God speaks judgment to his people and the prophets. So Isaiah 1 through 39 talks about Isaiah's day, but then Isaiah 40 through 55, it turns to the future, a period when Judah, the southern kingdom, would also face judgment and exile, and they'd be taken away into Babylon. And God speaks through Isaiah words of comfort and salvation. He says, even though this is happening to you now, and it will happen even worse to you in the future, I will bring comfort and salvation. And if you're at all familiar with Isaiah, there's a famous passage, Isaiah 53, which talks about the suffering servant, which is Jesus, in this passage. So God says through Isaiah in Isaiah 55, I'm going to bring you comfort and salvation. And then in the final section of Isaiah, he turns to Isaiah 56 through 66, and this is looking into the distant future of Isaiah's period, when he says, once I save you, I'm going to restore you to that original mission that I gave you of being a light to the nations. And so we see that the book of Isaiah is broken up into these three parts. In Isaiah 56, our passage is spoken during that transition from the comfort and salvation to the mission. And that's what we're going to be concerned with today. Follow along with me as I read the passage. Isaiah 56, 1 through 8. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness for soon my salvation will come, and my righteousness will be revealed. 
Blessed is the man who does this, and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me, and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name, and they shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, and hold fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him, besides those already gathered. Amen. Throughout human history, regardless of country or culture, there's always been classes of people who have been considered outcasts, people rejected, neglected, people who were not considered to be able to be part of larger society. Lepers in almost every culture were considered to be outcasts. Samaritans during Jesus' time were considered lesser than full Jewish people. Muslims and Jews in medieval Europe were outcasts and were relegated to ghettos within medieval Europe. Um, in Japan, during feudal Japan, the Barakamen, which was a specific caste of people, were outcasts because of their occupation, and they could not live in the village but had to live outside of it. In Nigeria, in Africa, there's a thing called the Osu caste system, which because of certain things your ancestors had done, you were part of that class of people, and you were less. You were outcasts. You were not part of larger society. Of course, most people are familiar with the Hindu caste system and the group of untouchables, which could not be included in certain professions and were relegated to different parts of society. And unfortunately, in much of human history throughout the world, women and children were outcasts, considered less human than men. And that is a tragedy. Outcasts have existed throughout human history, regardless of time or space. And they exist today in modern America as well, whether we think about that or not. For some reason, humans want to define who is part of the group and who is outside of the group. They want to say, we, you are in and you are out, based on any number of different things. Anyone who has lived through middle school can recognize that this is a reality. Uh, the, however, the God of the Bible is radically different. In his kingdom, amongst his people, in his family, there are no outcasts. There are no rejects, no people who are not full members of the family, no one who cannot become part of the family. The reality is that every single one of us is or was an outcast, an outcast from God, separated completely from him by our sins. And so because of our sins, we were outcasts. But as this passage hints, there's a way for us to become part of his family. This is a passage written before Jesus, and so it doesn't specifically talk about him, but he's hinted at. As good Presbyterians, we all believe that the Old Testament talks about Jesus, the sacrifices, the priests, everything points to Jesus. And so in this passage, we see talk about sacrifices. We see talk about how these people, eunuchs and foreigners, can become part of God's people. So the reality is all, each single one of us, was an outcast from God. 
or is an outcast from God because of our sin. But we can become part of his family, part of his people, if we trust in what Jesus has done for us in his sacrifice. So we're going to be exploring that big idea today. The big idea that because God, of the, the God of the outcasts, has graciously welcomed us into his family, we should obediently live out his mission. Let me say that again. Because the God of the outcasts has graciously welcomed us into his family, we should obediently live out his mission. And we're going to explore this big idea through two main points. Simply the God of the outcasts and the God's mission for the outcasts. The God of the outcasts and God's mission. So in verses 3, 5, 7, and 8, we see both the attitude of God towards outcasts as well as the benefits and relationships that he gives to those outcasts. And then in verses 1 to 2, 4 and 6, and verse 8, we see the attitude and actions of those outcasts and how they live out the mission in their specific time and place. So let's look at the first main point, the God of the outcasts and his heart for people. So we see, as I said already, the attitude, the relationship, the benefits of what God wants to extend to outcasts. Look with me in verse 8. We see it declared at the end, God's heart. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Again, to remind you, this is spoken at a point in time uh, where Israel and Judah were facing exile. And it's looking forward to the day when they will all be in exile and they will be hopeless in a situation where they're away from the promised land and they're questioning if God even cares or loves them. But he says, I will gather the outcasts of Israel and beyond that, I will gather even more. And we see, so we see that God says, the people of Israel aren't enough for me. I want every single outcast who can come into my family. I'm going to gather them. That is God's heart. His desire is to gather as many people to himself as he can. And so we see in this passage highlighted two outcasts, the foreigner and the eunuch. In verse 3, Isaiah, speaking on behalf of the Lord, says, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. So two types of people, the foreigner and the eunuch. The foreigner was any person who was not born of an Israelite family. A foreigner was any person who was not born of an Israelite family. It was a person who did not belong in Israel by reason of birth. And so because of that, they could not become part of the assembly of the Lord in most situations. If you were living in Israel and you were born there and your parents were both Moabite, you could not become an Israelite. You were a foreigner living amongst the people of Israel in the nation of Israel. In Deuteronomy 23.3, it says, No Ammonite or Moabite, two peoples that lived right next to Israel, no Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the 10th generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. And in Exodus 12, right after God took the people of Israel out of Egypt, and delivered them from slavery, and he gives them the Passover as a way to remember what he's done for them, it says that no foreigner can, pra- can participate in the Passover. So the foreigner. And then the eunuch. Eunuchs were males that were castrated and were unable to have children. And this was done for a variety of reasons in the ancient Near East, some religious, some political. Um, but the important thing to note for our purposes is that children in the ancient Near East were of incredible importance. Incredible importance. There was no social system. Uh, when you grew old, there wasn't a government paycheck that would come to help provide for your needs. 
your children, your family were how you were provided for. Additionally, children were of incredible importance because that was how you were remembered. That was how your name lasted beyond when you lived. This is difficult for us in our modern American culture to completely understand. We value children, but not in the same way. Uh, I'm married to Han Soon, who is Korean, and we got married in Korea. And in Korean culture, it's still very much influenced by Confucianism, which greatly values children and remembrance of past generations. And one interesting way that this was highlighted for me was when we first got married. We got married in Korea, and we had a traditional Christian wedding ceremony as well as a traditional Korean wedding ceremony. And in the Korean wedding ceremony, we dress up in traditional Korean clothes. We had a special tea service where we served tea to our parents, and there was different things to be said. And then we also played a couple of Korean wedding games. Um, My wife and I, we held this white sheet, and our parents, my parents and her parents, they, they threw chestnuts and dates at us. And we had to catch them in the white sheet. And how many ever chestnuts and dates we caught, that's how many children we were going to have. And we caught 17. And so uh, we only have three now, and so we still need to go a little bit further before we reach the goal. But uh, you can just see from this the value and the emphasis placed upon children. And that's something that's a little different in our culture. We still value children, but it's not the same. Because for a eunuch, they had no hope of that. They would not have a child who would remember them after they were gone. They wouldn't have a child who would take care of them in their old age. Their name would disappear when they died. And so they did not have that same hope that your typical Israelite had. And additionally, just like the Moabite and the Ammonite, the foreigner was excluded from the assembly of the Lord. The eunuch was also. In Deuteronomy 23.1, the same passage that excludes the foreigner, it says that eunuchs also will be excluded from the assembly of the Lord, from God's people. So in this passage, we see two excluded people groups, outcasts, actually welcomed into the people of God. It says that they will have, in verse 5, it says, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And then in verse 7, it says, these the foreigners, I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall not be called a house of prayer for, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. And then going back to verse six, it also says that the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, they will minister for me. They will love the name of the Lord and they will be my servants is what it says. This language here is the language of the Levitical priests the people who served in God's temple offered sacrifices. Not only are the foreigners welcomed in as God's people, they are given the opportunity to serve as the ones who represent God's people before God, a holy occupation. And so we see here very radically that the two very people that Deuteronomy 23 says are excluded and are outcasts from the people of God are actually welcomed into his house, into his family, and allowed to worship him. And I hope you saw as I read the passage at the beginning, the emphasis here on personal relationship. The personal pronouns in this passage are overwhelming. I, my, it's predominant here because it wants to emphasize that these people are actually in a personal relationship with the Lord, and they're personally part of God's people. But how do we reconcile this tension? The fact that Deuteronomy 23 and Isaiah 56 are actually written by the very, are part of the same Bible. 
Do we just assume as many academic scholars do that, oh, this was written hundreds of years apart, and so, of course, Israelite religion developed and it changed, and these people just thought differently. Back when Deuteronomy was written, they didn't like foreigners, and so they said they can't be part of God's people. And then when Isaiah 56 was written, they were in a different situation. They were weak, and so, of course, they welcomed uh, not foreigners into God's people. Is that what we do? No. There's an important point in this passage that we need to emphasize that shows why the foreigner and the eunuch are welcomed into God's people. Look with me at the passage. In verse 3, it says, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself, joined himself to the Lord. And then in verse 4, it says, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me, choose the things that please me, and hold fast my covenant. The emphasis here is on choice. These people have said, I am no longer going to be defined by what was before. I'm going to be defined by the fact that I have joined myself to the Lord. I have declared that I will be part of his people. We can see this abundantly illustrated in a famous Old Testament story about Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite, a very person who was not to be included in the assembly of the Lord, even to the 10th generation. But in Ruth chapter 1, she said to Naomi, her mother-in-law, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. And she followed the Lord and she followed Naomi back to Bethlehem and she became part of God's people. And who was Naomi's descendant, David, the king, the one who was after God's own heart, the one who was only three generations removed from Ruth. It said in Deuteronomy 23, even to the 10th generation, they cannot be included. This is because in Deuteronomy 23, all the groups of people talked there are people that are actively participating in foreign religions. The foreigners there are actively rejecting God, The eunuchs there are participating in a foreign religion. There's sorcerers talked about. There's other people who have not rejected their previous life, but are clinging on to it, and so they cannot be included in the assembly of the Lord. So we we see here God's heart for the outcasts of the world. He desires them to enter into relationship with himself. He wants them to become part of his family, and he gives them benefits, personal relationship, the ability to serve him in his house, the ability to be remembered as part of his people forever. He will give them an everlasting name better than sons and daughters. So when I thought of how I could illustrate this, I thought again of my Korean family. Um, When I lived in Asia for almost 10 years, uh, it was the most out of place I had ever been in my life. I'm obviously very white. I have hairy arms. If I don't shave for a day or two, it's very obvious that I have facial hair and a beard. And when I lived in Asia, I stuck out like a sore thumb because I'm not Asian. Uh, I can speak the language somewhat, but not very well. And when I lived in Korea specifically, I was an English teacher to elementary school kids. And I would teach them, and then I would grade their papers. And every time they would come up during the time I'd grade their papers at my desk, they would come up and sit, and a lot of them would rub my arm (laughs) because of my hair. And they'd say, oh, it's like a monkey. And uh, (laughs) uh, in Korean, but they knew I understood. And so... um, Uh, It was very obvious that I was not part of the greater group. I was not normal. But Han Soon's family warmly welcomed me in. When we got married, I was part of the family. And I was always welcomed there. And they went out of their way so often to make me feel welcomed. When we were living in China, before we lived in Korea for three years, when we lived in China for about five years, 
we would come back for short visits. And they'd be like, oh, Nathan, what do you want to eat? Oh, Nathan, what do you want to do? Do you want to go see a movie? Oh, Nathan, what do you want to do? Can we provide you with this? And Hansen would be like, hey, I'm here too. I've been living in China for two, three years as well. What do I want to do? Um, but that was because of their love and their concern for me. They went out of their way to make me feel welcomed as part of the family. And this is the same heart that God has. When we think about the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15, isn't that what God the Father did, who is represented by the Father in the parable? When the son rejected the Father and basically said, I wish you were dead, and left to go do his own thing, he came back later repentant, wanting to be reconciled, even willing to be a servant in his father's house. But the father saw him far off and ran as fast as he could to meet him and welcomed him in with a feast and a party, so happy that his father was back. That is our God's heart. Our God's love for the world is abundant and overflowing. But unfortunately, we too often want to limit his love. We want to say, who can receive his love? Who can be a part of that group? Who is in and who is out? Do we have that same heart that God has? A heart that is overflowing with love for people around us who are created in God's image. Do we view ourselves as outcasts, as I began this sermon with? Do we view ourselves as in desperate need of reconciliation with God? That's the beginning. If we don't view ourselves as that, then why would we think of other people as being warmly welcomed by God? Regardless of our success, regardless of our wealth, regardless of our our accomplishments, we are all outcasts but for God's grace. If we did not have God, it wouldn't matter how successful we were. It wouldn't matter how much money we had in the bank or who we were. It's only by God's grace that we are welcomed into his family and able to claim his forgiveness. So do we view ourselves as outcasts? Do we love those around us who are outcasts? What we're talking about here is hospitality. God is a God of hospitality, a God who wants to warmly welcome the world back into relationship with himself. That's why he created it in the beginning. He created Adam and Eve to exist in a relationship with himself. But we rejected him because of our sin. So God makes a place for each of us regardless of our sins, our background. Are we doing that for others? Are we making a place for others? Are we being hospitable to our neighbors, to the people we work with? Are we going out of our way to see how can I make this person feel more welcome? And it's not just out there, it's in here at EP. Are we making people feel welcome in the pews next to us? Are we on the lookout for who maybe is new here so that we can go say hi and be like, hey, what are you doing here? What's your story? Why are you here? I'm so happy to meet you. Please come again. There's two kinds of people at church that we need to be hospitable to. New people who are Christians and are coming to visit because maybe they moved to the new area or they're leaving another church because of whatever reason. We need to be on the lookout for them, ready to welcome them into the life of EP, as well as unbelievers. Are there things we're doing here at EP on Sunday morning that make people feel incredibly uncomfortable and unwelcome? We need to think about that and evaluate that. Uh, The church staff and the leadership are going through a thing called The Vine Project, which is a book that helpfully looks through how a church is fulfilling the Great Commission of making disciples. And it has four parts. It has four E's. That's a very helpful way of thinking how we make disciples. Engage, evangelize, establish, and equip. Engage, evangelize, establish, and equip. 
And this heart for the outcast, this heart for other people that God has, which is displayed in this passage, is present in all four of those E's. Why do we engage with people in our neighborhood who are not Christians? Because we have God's heart for them. We love them. We know that, but for God's grace, they will face God's judgment. And if we do not tell them that message, how will they hear? We evangelize. We share God's love with people because of that heart. When they come in our doors, we establish them here at EP because we want them to be welcomed and be built up in their relationship with the Lord. So I leave you in with this second, uh, before we move on to the second point, with this last question. Who is it that you would not want here at EP? Who is it that if you walked in and they were sitting in the pew that you normally sat in, you'd be like, oh, okay, let's go over there. Who would we not want here? We need to make them feel warmly welcomed. We need to be excited that they would even come in our doors and meet them where they are to share God's love with them and share the gospel and share the truth. Yes, of course, because each individual is precious in God's sight, created in his image and worthy of his son dying for them. So before we move, now that we move on to the next point, God's mission for the outcasts. God has graciously welcomed us into his family. God graciously welcomed the foreigner and the eunuch into his mission, but he gave into his family, but he gave them a mission. He didn't just save them to just exist in the family. He saved them for a purpose. And it was the purpose that God saved Israel for in the first place, to be a light to the nations, to take God's message to the world. And we see that again in verse 8, where it highlights that God is the God who gathers outcasts, and he says that he will gather even more than he's already gathered. But what is this mission? It's really quite simple, but it's also difficult to do. It's simple because it can be summarized from this passage in three subpoints. It's obeying God's law, it's keeping the Sabbath, and it's rejecting evil. Obeying God's law, keeping the Sabbath, rejecting evil. And all of this is done because they're already part of God's family, not to earn it. Look in verse 1, it says, and this is a command right here in verse 1, thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness. What is this justice and righteousness? This is what the Old Testament writers would often use to summarize all of God's law, all of his ways that he wanted his people Israel to live. And where is God's law preeminently displayed? In the Ten Commandments, which Jesus summarized in his earthly ministry as love God and love your neighbor. Love God and love your neighbor. All of Israel's laws were about those two things, loving God and loving your neighbor. Then we see also in verse 1 that it goes on, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness will be revealed. The justice and righteousness is a response to the salvation that has been granted. It's not to earn it. And then we see a couple other ways that Israel was to live out their mission. In verse 2, it says, Blessed is the man who does this, and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. So two things. Uh, we saw first justice and righteousness, which is obeying God's law. Keeping the Sabbath. Keeping the Sabbath was a distinctive mark for the people of Israel. It was a way that all the nations around them knew that they were different. Before God gave the Sabbath to Israel, nothing like that existed in the world. Think about it. Back then, a nation was controlled often by a king and then a few very powerful, wealthy individuals. 
would that type of person be like, yeah, all you workers, all you people who farm my land, go ahead and take off one day of the week for nothing and rest? No, this, this concept of the Sabbath did not exist before God gave it to the people of Israel. And why did he give it to them? He gave it to them so that they would be distinct and unique in all the world. It was a distinctive declaration that I am God's, and I trust him that I'm going to work six days of the week, and that last day, I'm going to trust that even if I don't work, God's going to provide for me. Because he said that I need to rest and worship him on that day as a declaration that I trust the Lord. And so for Israel, keeping the Sabbath was a declaration, a distinctive marker that they were God's people and that they were trusting in him as their creator, their savior, and their provider. So we had covenant obedience, obeying God's law, keeping the Sabbath, and then the last one, again in verse 2, it says, keeps his hand from doing any evil. This was an explicit rejection of all that had defined their lives before they joined themselves to the Lord. It was a rejection of evil in all of its manifestations, which I talked about at the beginning of the sermon. Israel had unfortunately done all those evil things that the nations around them were doing. The various ways that sin has corrupted human life. We are to reject them. Israelite people were to reject them completely so that they could be seen by the surrounding people as distinct, as unique, as following God's way. And the rejecting all that is evil, keep his hands from doing evil, this is where all the really obscure and minuscule laws in the Bible come in. Uh, The preeminent display of God's will is the Ten Commandments. But then we have tons of laws in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, which when you read, you're like, what is all of this? That was a specific explanation of how the Ten Commandments worked out in everyday life when Israel lived in the land. So we need to think creatively. How can we take the Ten Commandments and apply them to our lives here in Annapolis, our lives here in modern America? So again, to summarize, God's mission for his gathered outcasts in this passage is threefold. Covenant obedience, obeying God's law, keeping the Sabbath as a distinct person in rejection of evil and sin. And it's not just in verse 1 and 2, which I read, but if you look in the rest of the passage, which we don't have time for, but if you look in the rest of the passage, it comes up again and again, those same three things. The eunuchs keep the Sabbath. The foreigners keep the Sabbath. They reject evil. They hold fast to my covenant. And if you're thinking all of this is very ordinary, it is. It doesn't require a revolutionary or radical agenda. It doesn't require extensive specialized training even though that might be helpful and is important. It's just leaving, living your ordinary life with those around you, but living it in a way that shows that you are distinctly a Christian or in Israelite, Israelite time, an Israelite. We see that the outcasts who had been welcomed into God's family were given a mission. God's mission is simple. It's being restored to a right relationship with him, with the creator. And then because of that fixed relationship, living with those around you in a way that restores relationships. And it's defined by those three things. As I was thinking about how to illustrate this point and of how living God's mission is not some difficult and radical thing, I was reminded of a, a sermon I heard by a pastor in Chicago, Kent Hughes. And he shared a story that a missionary in Africa had shared with him. And it went like this. Uh, the missionary in Africa told a story of an elderly woman in the country he ministered in, who was reached with the gospel, and she became a Christian. And this woman was blind. She was elderly. 
and she could not read or write. But she was so impacted by the message of God's love and forgiveness that she was like, I need to tell other people. So she asked the missionary for a Bible written in French, and she said, can you find John 3.16 for me? He did. She's like, can you underline it in red? And he did. She's like, can you put a big star at the top of that page? And he did. And then she said, thank you, and took the Bible. And the missionary was very curious, what is she going to do with the Bible? And so he followed her, and she went to a local school, a local boys' school. She stood at the gate of the school, and any time a boy would come out, she said, can you read? And when he said yes, she was like, open the book to the starred page. And he would, and he would, she said, read the underlined passage. And she would read John three sixteen. And once the boy was done, she would share and talk about God's love for them and how in Jesus Christ they were forgiven of their sins. And the missionary shared with Kent Hughes that as a result of that, 24 boys became pastors through her sharing the gospel with them. And yes, wow, um, was this woman highly trained? Had she gone to years of school? Was she an incredible gifted person? I don't know. She hadn't gone to school. She was blind. She couldn't read. But she was so impacted by God's love that she wanted other people to know. And God used that. Each of us needs to have that heart. This is the same heart that God has, the love for other people. And this is the heart we need to have that needs to propel us out of these doors so that our week is impacted by God's love and we impact those around us. Are we living out this attitude and actions that characterize those who are invited into God's family? Are we living out this mission? As I said, it's simple, it's ordinary, but it will have a great impact as we build relationships with our neighbors, with our coworkers, with our family, our friends. Our world desperately needs real relationships. That's what people are longing for. Facebook, social media, those things aren't going to provide those relationships we were created for. If we become really good at relationship and we go out there and love the people around us, this isn't going to be a burden to talk with them about that, about God's love. They might think we're strange, that's okay, but they probably will also think, wow, that person actually loves me. I don't necessarily agree with this message of I'm a sinner and God died for me, but I can tell that this person loves me, and so I'm going to respect them. It's happened. I know people it's happened for. Where time is running down, and I would love to share more, but last thing I want to share is that maybe you don't feel equipped for God's mission. Maybe you're like, yes, Nathan, I can go out there and I can build relationships with other people, but then what? Um, we here at EP are working hard to find ways that we can equip everybody for God's mission. And so I want to invite you next Sunday, January 5th, during the Sunday school hour, we are going to have an all-adult Sunday school down in the fellowship hall, where we are going to highlight some of the stuff I've been talking about, the Vine Project, that terminology, that language, to help you understand how we as a church are trying to become better at making disciples of all people. And we're also going to highlight a whole bunch of Sunday school classes that we're going to begin offering on January 12th. So next Sunday, January 5th, please join us down in the fellowship hall during the Sunday school hour at 945 so you can learn about ways that you can be equipped for God's mission. These Sunday school classes are going to, there's like a whole bunch. There's going to be how to um, have a gospel-focused marriage, how to have a gospel-focused family. There's going to be marriage preparation classes. There's going to be new membership classes. There's going to be a class on how to share Jesus while strengthening relationships. There'll be a whole bunch. 
Last thing I want to leave you with is don't feel burdened. Like, there's no way I can possibly do this. There's no way I can go out there and share God's love with other people. You can. It's possible. God is with us. So often as we work through relationships, it's the Holy Spirit right there alongside of us, influencing people, impacting them for the kingdom. So to conclude, we should obediently live out God's mission because the God of the outcasts has graciously welcomed us into his family. As we finish out the Christmas season, we reflect on the fact that Jesus so loved the world that he came at Christmas from heaven down into a stable as a baby for the purpose of bringing all of us outcast sinners into God's family. That is the message of love and hope that we have. That is what we should be motivated and propelled by. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you so much that you are a God of love and forgiveness, a God who cares deeply for his world. We pray, Father God, that you would help us to be transformed and changed by your message of love and grace so that we also, once we recognize we've been warmly welcomed to your family, will go out with a heart of love and compassion for those around us and warmly welcome them as well. Thank you for your word. We pray that we would be able to go out and live obediently today. In Jesus' name, amen.